uh, is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning at verse 14. And you'll find it on page 287 of the Church Bible. 1 Samuel 16, beginning at verse 14. David and Saul's service. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul, he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. And we continue to read in chapter 17, uh, beginning at verse 34. And you'll find this on page 289. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dare I pray this morning that we would become less and you would become more, Lord Jesus. 
in me, in us, that you would be glorified. Amen. Around the turn of the 20th century, a pioneering psychologist named Alfred Adler proposed the counterintuitive theory of, of, sorry, I'm going to try and get my words right, of compensation. Adler believed and studied that perceived disadvantages often prove to disguise advantages because they force us to develop new attitudes, new abilities that we would have remained otherwise undiscovered. The essence of his research being that it's not necessarily the things that we're most gifted at, that we're most able at, the, the things that bring blessing to us, that enable us to flourish. But it's often in the places of, of weakness or not natural strength that actually people develop the character and also the skills in those places. So, for example, in his study, he studied the fact that he found out that 70% of the art students that he looked at in his studies actually had optical anomalies. He reflected on things like some of the great composers like Beethoven and Mozart that actually had degenerative traces in their hearing. What Adler concluded was this. He concluded that perceived disadvantages such as birth defects, such as physical ailments, even such as poverty, can be a springboard to growth, to fulfillment, and in the world's eyes, maybe success. And importantly, the thing he said was this. He said this. He said, it's not achieved in spite of those perceived disadvantages. It's achieved precisely because of them that they became so fruitful. I was smiling this week at preparing this because if I take you back 30 years, uh, I was here in Bath, I was up the hill, I was at school up the hill, and I met a number of the teachers I was at school with this week who I hadn't seen for 30 odd years. And I was remembering the fact that one of my worst times at school, one of the moments I dreaded at school, was when I had to sit in the class and read aloud to people. I physically dreaded it. I would physically be very overwhelmed by just the thought of having to speak in front of others. I don't stand here because I'm strong, because I'm gifted. I stand here because God's called me. I don't stand here because I think that it's all that. It's because actually in places of weakness, I've had to surrender myself again and again and again and again to do what God calls me to do, not because I would naturally like to do it. God sees the whole of our lives. God sees every bit of our lives. No bit of our life, no part of our life is hidden to God. All of it is seen by him, is known by him, is understood by him. But let me set the scene of the readings we looked started last week by looking at David, at the scene that's in front of us. The clock is ticking, and David's mind is racing. Memories from the past cascade through him into his consciousness. David, bear in mind, is only a teenager. 
But in his short life, he flashes through the things that go through his mind. And that's what happens when you're staring death in the face. When you're stood before a nine-foot giant named Goliath. David is going through his past experiences, searching for hope and help in a moment of the most acute discomfort for him. And something triggers a memory as he does that. He remembers a roaring lion pouncing into his mind, comes into his mind, just as the fero- that ferocious lion did on the day he was tending his father's sheep on the outskirts of Bethlehem. A rush of adrenaline pumps through his veins, as he recalls, putting a smooth stone into his sling. David calms his nerves, steadies his hand, and takes aim at the lion's forehead. The stone hits the target, stunning the lion, just enough for David to go up to the lion and to finish him off with his bare hands. In that moment, in this memory, fear evaporates and confidence grows. But it's a revelation, not just self-confidence. It's holy confidence. Confidence, faith and trust in God be with him in all his life. This uncircumcised Philistine that David is staring at across him is no different from the wild animals David faced while he was tending sheep. David begins to connect the dots in his mind between his past experiences and where he is today. And it's that sense of connecting those dots and seeing God's hand in work in the past that gives him the confidence and the trust to face what he is in front of him. Just to reread those verses from 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 37. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after that lion struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord will be with you. All of our past experiences are preparation for some future opportunity that God may want to use in your life or my life. And he also may want to redeem bits of your life, some of the experiences, some of the things that have been in your life that actually you're ashamed of, you don't want to look at, and you don't want to even recognize. God is at work in redeeming our lives. That includes the places of disappointment, the places of suffering, and some of the challenges of life that we are seeking to overcome. And in those places, if my own personal experience is to come by, but also Christians over the centuries, is this. Even in those dark places, those suffering places, God is at work cultivating character, developing our gifts, even in our brokenness and our weakness. 
Each wild animal that attacked David's flock tested David's character and his skill. David could have sacrificed his sheep on any one of those moments. He could have just let the lion take those sheep away. He could have chosen the easy life, David could. He had not worried about the standards of the ways of shepherds. He could have not cared whether he looked after his sheep. He's thinking it's a lion, it's a sheep, that's just what happens. But instead, David looked after his flock. David laid down his life for the flock. Why is this so significant? Because God was preparing David to shepherd his flock, the nation of Israel. See, when we look at David's life, I put up the uh, picture last week of Michelangelo's David. He looked very kind of imposing, but actually David was at a major disadvantage, remember. He wasn't a leader. He wasn't even in the army. His brothers were far more qualified than David was to do the task that was in front of them. David didn't even know how to wield a sword and a spear. All David had been doing was tending sheep. So while it seems as if David was completely unprepared for the task that God was giving him, he was actually perfectly prepared for what God wanted him to do because God had been at work in the background, in the day-to-day of David's life. For this, may not, this may just be uh, a defining moment of, of boys' lives, but I remember when I was growing up, one of the defining moments in sort of things you remember from your childhood as you grow up is when it came to school, uh, or subsequently that, and you used to pick teams to play sport. So the whole class would be arranged to play football, and basically there'd be one, uh, one person would be chosen to pick a team here, one just person would be chosen to pick a team there. And basically, the two people to choose a team would go ahead and pick the team. And it would start with this person would pick the best footballer, for example. This person would pick his best mate. This person wouldn't pick his best mate. And this person would pick the next person's best mate or the person they thought was the best at it. And you'd go through it and through it and through it until there were just a couple of people left. Nobody wanted to be the person left, not wanted in the team to be stuck on the sidelines. Actually, you might not even get a game. You might be asked to be the substitute. Each of us are called to live through our first-hand experiences of life. We're not called to live life on the sidelines God has a life planned and purposed for each one of us. We're not called to live a life as an extra in our own story, but we're called to take the lead role in our own lives and to take responsibility for that. We're not called to trade off other people's experiences, but instead creating and working with God to build the life that he's uniquely called us to. That's living. That's what God's called us to, and that's what we're called to do, not sit on the sidelines. And I wonder if that's how David felt as he sat on the sidelines while his brothers went off to war. They all headed off to war, and he was left. He wanted to go with them. Why should I be left when my brothers are heading off to be part of the action? What a letdown to be passed over, not to be part of what's going on. 
what David didn't realize at the time was this. God was perfectly placing, placing him and preparing him to get him into the game of where he wanted him at the right time, in the right place, with the right experiences. And that's also true for us in yours and my life. See, the battle of David and Goliath wasn't won by David in many ways by the battle of the Valley of Elah against Goliath. Uh, uh, Goliath. Those who are involved in teams, and particularly in sports teams, know that actually it's one on the training ground. It's in the discipline of constant practice and training and doing the right things at the right time. Uh, developing our gifts and our skills, that enable when it gets to that moment, you're prepared and you're ready. It's how pianists practice, it's how artists do. Moses needed to tend sheep for 40 years before he could lead the Lord's people, the flock of Israel. Jesus crafted masterpieces in wood before he crafted masterpieces out of us. Every appointment, every divine appointment of God's is preceded by a season of preparation, by paying attention to preparation. And one of the biggest challenges in your own discipleship, in your own life, is recognizing what season you're in. If you don't, if you don't understand the season of life you're in, you'll encounter huge amounts of frustration, huge amounts of disappointment, and huge amounts of disillusionment. Pastorally, you see it again and again and again. There are seasons where you're called to lead, but there are also seasons when you're called to follow. It's not the same all the time. There are seasons when handling failure is of a greater gift than handling success. And one of the biggest mistakes we often make is longing for a different season, longing for a different season than the season God has placed us in. We fail to live in the present, either obsessed by the past or anxious about the future, and we miss what God is doing in our lives today. When I was 19 years old at uh, York University, I remember being somewhere I, I, in a meeting of some kind. It was the first time I felt at some point that God would call me to some full-time ministry. I remember going to visit one or two people who said, what should I do with this? He said, God, is I'm like making it up. And they said, get a proper job. You don't need to be doing that vickering thing or that kind of full-time thing. And actually, that was the right advice. But it took over 20 years to see the fulfillment of that promise of that word that God had laid on my hand. I can't explain why it took 20 years. But God has a way with us of, of having there are divine delays in our lives, as I would, I would call it. We may have a dream, we may have a hope, we may have a life, we may have a role, have an experience we long to see come into, into practice. But God will get you there at his time. God longs to get you in the right place to do the right things far more than you do this morning. He longs to get you where he wants you to be far more than you do this morning. So maybe this morning one of the things you need to do is just take a deep breath and realize God has got you. Maybe you need to take a deep breath and realize that God has hold of you. Or don't give up. 
God is at work in you in maybe new ways, different ways, ways that you wouldn't choose, ways that you don't want maybe, but maybe that is the way God is at work in you. And I'm constantly reminded when I'm placing it in positions, and this week has been a challenging week, where my capacity to do what's in, in front of me is, is not adequate for the task. And God reminds me that he wants to grow my capacity, both emotionally but also as a person, in all those challenges that we face. If I will trust in him, if I'll give my life to him, if I'll fall afresh on him. I'm just as tempted as you are, but we need to remind ourselves again and again that the Christian story is about crucifixion as well as resurrection. Without a crucifixion, there is no resurrection. There's a death before there's life. There is a dark place before the light comes in. Yes, being in a dark place is often an extraordinary place, and I can testify this many times in my life, a dark place can be an extraordinary place in your life where God may want to do a miracle of transforming darkness into light. Don't give up hope. Hold, hold fast when the temptation is to give in and not persevere as Marion attested to. See, the thing is, none of us know when that moment will come when God decides to bring his resurrection touch to our lives. We don't design the time, we don't design the ages by which that's the case, but God does. He knows those times, he knows those moments. Somewhere, somehow, sometime, if it's his plan and his purpose, he will bring it into being. I don't know this morning how you feel about your own life. Maybe you can identify with David as a young boy, feeling as though he's unappreciated, unnoticed, overlooked, as everybody else goes off to play the significant part in their lives. Maybe seeing that everybody else seems to be getting the promotion, the opportunities, the roles that they want, the lifestyle that you would really want, the opportunities, the relationship you desperately want. Yet this morning, I just want to say to you, God is at work in your life if you will turn to him. But will you recognize him? Will you ask him? Will you respond to him? Will you respond to the prompting he is uh, at work in your life? And for me, I know I'm tempted to be this often, we want to think big rather than think long. We want to see this place full of people worshipping God. We want to see the fullness of the gospel reach the fullness of the people of this city and beyond. And we'd like to see it tomorrow, thanks, without any cost. But God calls us to a long obedience in the same direction towards him. That's one of the def definitions someone famously said about discipleship. Will you trust God today? Will you place your trust again in God? Recognizing that wherever you are this morning, however, however much of a longing you have in your life, that actually he is able, but will you trust him? Will you place your trust in him for your life, your future, the things you long to see? Actually, David, uh, he wasn't a towering presence. Actually, um, he was a very small boy in many ways. He's described as the youngest. The, the actual text 
in the Hebrew actually means he was a very small person uh, and in many ways insignificant. And actually Goliath mocked David. Goliath mocked David. But David possessed a skill as a shepherd that the soldiers did not. His training ground was the hillsides of, uh, with his flock outside Bethlehem. David was the unlikeliest at this point in time of heroes. Yet without his shepherding experience, there's no way he defeats Goliath. He most definitely doesn't become king. And he therefore never produces the royal lineage, lineage that effectively ends in Jesus. See, one of the storylines when you read the life of David and you look at the life of the David is the way God is using seemingly insignificant things, random skills to strategically place David in the place God wanted him to be. I bet David complained when he was um, forced to do music lessons when he was growing up. I don't want to do that. But it was precisely because of that, that gift and that skill that he developed that he was perfectly placed to enter the court of a king. When David played the harp, it soothed Saul's spirit. His gift in music became a way in which God placed him in the very place he wanted him to be. Without his music skills, David wouldn't even got a foot in the door. We need to remember that God can use anything and everything in our lives for his purpose if he'll simply allow us to see where he is at work and be used by him. David obviously was also a beautiful songwriter. And some of the greatest psalms, some of the most telling psalms, some of the longest living psalms, which of those of you who know your Bible, you'll know quite well in here, the whole 150 psalms that you'll find, come out of some of those difficult circumstances in life. Go and read Psalm 23 again this week. Read Psalm 51 again this week. Read Psalm 142 and they're not just psalms of great celebration, but they come out of the depth of human suffering and wrestling. This morning, you may not want to be where you are in your circumstance in your life. I know some of you, uh, and I know some of the struggles in your life. And you may say, well, Tim, I don't want to be in that season. I don't want to be where I am this morning. You may be wrestling with all sorts of things to do with depression or reeling still from a mistake you constantly make. Or, or mistakes or things people have done to you that you think this morning are unforgivable. Dare I suggest that in spite of all those circumstances, even in those circumstances, God wants to get to work in you, even in the pain and the difficulty. God is wanting to get to work in you. How do I know that? Because we looked at last week, because you are his masterpiece. You are his masterpiece. And he's chipping and he's chiseling and he's working that marble block to make you as a finished piece of his art, of his poem, of his work. That's what he does. That's what he longs, longs to do in our lives. Looking back uh, on life, it's a little bit like trying to connect the dots where are the defining moments of our lives? And David's close encounters with lions and with bears doubled as defining moments in his own life, in his own outlook on life. How do we know that? Because for David, there were also near-death experiences. 
and nothing stamps our identity quite like near-death experience. It crystallizes at the most basic level what is really, really important. Some of you will know that um, there's a famous sort of Christian writer uh, for quite a long time ago called Oswald Chambers, and he's written one of the most uh, famous devotionals or most read devotionals um, probably globally uh, called My Utmost for the Highest. And he writes beautifully and compellingly uh, in that. And his writing is incredibly rich and stunning in it. But he, he faced death numerous times. He had huge amounts of pain and suffering in his life. But he coined one of the most beautiful phrases that came out of those places of pain and suffering. And it was this, let God engineer. Let God engineer. Let God engineer. These three words captured his trust in God's sovereignty, in God's kingdom, his kingdom rule and reign over his life. Let God engineer. And it's that kind of trust that starts to grow in us, a holy confidence for the day-to-day life each of us will be called to. A huge uh, percentage of the problems each of us face are symptoms of very deep-rooted spiritual problem in everybody's life. And that's the lack of trust in our sovereign God. So our lack of trust often, not always, but often results in the high levels of being guilty all the time or shamed by a past that you would rather just went away. Or it's that kind of lack of trust that struggle to believe today, Lord, can I trust you for today? I'm just stressed. I haven't got control of it. I don't know what's going to happen. Or that future time, anxiety. Will God take me to a good place? Can I trust God to get me to somewhere good? And we get consumed by all those things. That three-headed monster, the past, the present, the future, the anxiety, the guilt, the shame, the stress, rob us of our joy, of our peace, of our hope, and any confidence we have in seeing God at work in our lives day by day, and the sense of destiny and purpose that God has for each one of us. Many of us uh, find a huge amount of our confidence in the things we can control, but it comes a false sense of confidence. God's confidence, our holy confidence, isn't circumstantial, it's providential, it's based on what God has done in Jesus for us. It's his hand and his work. It's very easy to live a life where our circumstances dictate how our life goes. But putting God in front of our circumstances, over our circumstances, around our circumstances, allows us to begin to see them in their proper perspective allows us to see his sovereignty, his mightiness, his majesty, his kingship, his kingdom overall that dwarfs some of the giants in yours and my life this morning. I don't know whether any of you would own up this morning to saying that you're a bit of a control freak. I'm not looking for a response, by the way. I'm not asking you to put your hand up if you think you are a control freak. Ask your husband or your wife whether that's true, or your family members. Most of us struggle with control. Why? Because we want to take control of our circumstances. And ultimately, we want to try and control God himself. We want to control others, we want to control ourselves, and ultimately we want to control God. It's really nothing 
more than a futile attempt at self-help. It reflects our lack of trust in God's help, in God's action, God's activity, God's spirit at work in our day-to-day lives. And it's a prideful attempt to help God do his job for him. God hasn't called us to be God. God has called us to be us. God hasn't called us to be God. He's called us to be us. He's called us to be ourselves. And our control issues really are trust issues. The less we trust in God, the more we have to take control. But that loss of control, if you are somebody who really struggles with that, feels like a loss of life itself. We feel like we'll spiral. We won't be able to get things the way we need them. But nothing is more exhausting spiritually, emotionally, physically than feeling as though you have are personally taking control of the planet's motion each day. Pretending as though you are dictating the seasons, your life, every part of it. And the flip side is this. The greatest freedom in the world is relinquishing your seat in the kingship of your own life and submitting to the sovereign one the King of kings and the Lord of lords who wants to be in his sovereign place that he always planned and always destined for it to be in his life. And when you do that, that place of placing your total trust in God, self-confidence gets crucified and holy confidence gets resurrected. As I come to a close, one of the other phrases that Chambers used other than let God engineer was he took that famous verse from Paul of being more than conquerors. And he he created a word called unconquerableness. He took the phrase from Paul and he used that word, and David's life looks very much like that. He wouldn't step back, he wouldn't step down. He saw that God had engineered his days. He saw that God had placed him there. He'd seen that God had been at work in his past, leading through all those experiences. That meant he could stand in the confidence that God had called him there to do the thing that he'd been called to do. And he embraced it. And as I sit here today, every one of you will have different stories, different bits where you have seen God at work in your day-to-day lives. And that becomes the place where you can grow greater confidence in God. You may, as you've read scripture, felt, you know, that word, that verse was for me. You may have heard God's voice where you've been out walking. You may have been led to pray for someone who got miraculously provided for, healed, or whatever it was, helpful. You ended up in a circumstance where you'd been completely anxious and you prayed and suddenly you felt peace. Where you experienced forgiveness and cleansing for the first time when you were just consumed by guilt, by anxiety. You'd be used by God to bless others, to see the poor fed, the hungry (coughs) filled. It's a confidence in God's ability, not just our own. In a sense, our faith is really a byproduct of God's extraordinary faithfulness to us. We realize it's God who delivers delivers us from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. And also will deliver us from the giants that face, each of us face in our lives. But it starts with small wins. It starts with looking after the sheep on the hillside in Bethlehem that enable us to grow that confidence that God is at work in us and through us. And by the time David reached the Valley of Elah, he had accumulated enough holy confidence that he could face and go after the giant. It takes time for faith and growth and confidence to come together. So this morning, what confidence do we have 
What is it God is calling us to be and do this week? Where is it that God wants to fan into flame the gift that he's given you that's unique to you, that means you can step into the week that you face with renewed confidence that God is at work in and through you? God is ordering our footsteps. He did it for David, he will do it for us. God is at work redeeming his creation, you and I. But if you give him the chance, if you give him the opportunity, he can also redeem you and I this morning. It's that assurance that reads, leads to an inner unconquerableness, a holy confidence. And we pray for you this morning, and for me, and for this church. Let God engineer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each one of us here this morning. I thank you for your hand upon each one of our lives. I thank you that each person here has a different story to tell of why they're here this morning. They may feel as though they're hanging on to you by their fingertips. They may not quite know how to express it, but you are at work in our lives. Thank you for that. Father, I ask that you would continue to shape, to direct, to engineer our church, that we would grow in confidence and faith in the God who was and is and is to be. In Jesus' name, amen.